Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Neufeld. Today we continue our series on heaven. And John, where are you going to take us today? Well, I really want to talk about the new heavens and the new earth. I want to talk about the new Jerusalem. These are, these are words that we find in the Bible, and it serves us well to ask, what do those words actually mean? You know, and it's really interesting uh, because I've heard you speak on this before. There's things that come out right now that I had never considered or thought about, so this should surprise some people. Yeah, I hope it does, but I hope it surprises us in a way that causes us to dig more deeply into the Scripture and stop just reading the words and asking ourselves, what do the words mean? Amen. Amen. Join us in just a few minutes with Dr. John Neufeld right here on Truth and Life Today. You know, if you've been following uh, my series on heaven, uh, you've heard me say that heaven is not some nebulous, far-off place that we're kind of sitting on a cloud and playing harps or whatever that is. You've heard me say that heaven is a real place and that when we talk about heaven, technically, we should be talking about the new heaven and the new earth, which is our ultimate dwelling place. Now, when I say that, a lot of people are afraid to talk about living in a new earth, and I'll tell you why. We've all heard that there are Jehovah's Witnesses that say to us, we're gonna live on earth and not on heaven. And we've heard that and we know that's false teaching and so we're a little bit afraid of that. But let's listen, not to Jehovah's Witnesses, but let's listen to what the scripture says. And I wanna begin this discussion about heaven today where we're gonna talk about the new heaven and the new earth and define it as well as we can. Let me start by reading Romans chapter eight, beginning at verse 18. Paul writes, therefore, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm gonna stop there and say something significant. It's so important that we think about the glories that will be revealed because if we don't think about that, the sufferings of the present day are going to overwhelm us. See, there are people who never can see beyond the present trial, and because they can't, they become consumed in the present trial. They complain around their sufferings. They even shake their fist at God and say, God, how can you allow that to happen? When they don't realize that God is preparing for us a home in glory. So it's very important to compare our present sufferings to the glory that is to come. So let's carry on. Romans chapter eight, beginning of verse 19, Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now let's carry on. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then Paul writes, for in this hope we are saved. Oh, there's just a mouthful in all of that, but would you notice that the longing for the redemption of our bodies, our bodies to be made new, is tied in Paul's thinking with the redemption of the earth as a whole. The earth is groaning as well, not only are we. The earth is subject to bondage because God has subjected it, 
That means after the sin of Adam, because sin entered into the world, the world has been a cursed place. Yep, it's been a marvelous place. It is still what our Father has made, but it is also a world that is invaded by sin. So there's a kind of groaning that's going on. And Paul imagines this groaning to be very much like a woman that's about to give birth. Labor pains are there, but the woman giving birth may be very aware of her pain, but she's also very aware of the hope that is about to come. Something beautiful is about to happen, and that is the birth of a child. The same is true with this earth. Something beautiful is about to happen, and that is the renewal of all things. So I've been talking about the new heaven and the new earth. So let's start talking about the new earth. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's our ultimate destiny to inherit the work of God's hands. And let me start then by talking about some of the things that we have. When Christ returns, we will receive a new body. And then after we receive a new body and rule and reign with him for a thousand years on this earth, then all things will be burned up and the earth will be made new. It will be renewed. God will create a new earth. He will resurrect the earth, as it were, but an earth without corruption. So that's what the new earth is. It's this earth that will exist free from any taint of sin. And this is our eternal abode. That's what we wait for. But the Bible also said that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. So let's turn our attention from the new earth to the new heaven and say, how can the heavens be made new? Well, when the Bible speaks about a new heaven, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12 and verse 2. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, he says. Now, in Paul's way of thinking, there are three heavens. In other words, there are three ways of talking about heaven. First of all, Paul can speak about heaven as simply that expanse which is directly over our heads. The second thing he can do is he can talk about heaven in terms of the cosmos, all of the spheres that inhabit, however large the cosmos is. And the third way he can speak about heaven is in the eternal dwelling place of God. Now, here's the question. When the Bible says he will create a new heaven and a new earth, which definition of heaven is it speaking to? Well, let me take you to Revelation chapter 21, and here Paul, I'm sorry, John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, it's clear from this that the dwelling place of God never passes away. It's eternal, it's fixed, it will always remain. So whatever is meant by the new heaven, it can't refer to the dwelling place of God. Therefore, we have to assume that when the Bible speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, it's speaking of a new universe, that is, a new planet Earth and a new universe as well. In the end of the day, God will create a new universe. It will be based upon everything that has been created up till now, but it will be a universe that's splendid in a way we can hardly imagine today. That is the future that we look forward to, but there is so much more to talk about.
I've been saying that whenever we read the word heaven in our Bible, we need to ask ourselves, which definition of heaven are we talking about? You see, sometimes when the Bible speaks about heaven, it speaks about the throne room of God. So there is, in fact, a place, even while God inhabits all things, he's present to all spaces at all times. That is to say, you and I have never been outside of the immediate presence of God. He inhabits all things. And yet there is a throne room of God. And the throne room of God is sometimes what we call heaven. It's the place where his glory abides. But sometimes when the word heaven is used, it simply refers to the entire created order. And I've been arguing that in Revelation 21, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, the new heaven doesn't say that the throne room of God has to be made new. You know, it's an eternal dwelling place, but rather heaven is a place of all of the creation. It's the cosmos, if you will. So reading again from Revelation 21, I say, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw, writes John, the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So it would seem to me that Jerusalem now represents the dwelling place of God. Now, we've been talking about the renewal of earth and the renewal of heaven, but now we're talking about the renewal of Jerusalem. So let me talk about Jerusalem for a little bit. You know, Jerusalem is a city that's been a lot around for a lot of years. Abraham went there, he almost sacrificed his son right on top of a mountain overlooking Jerusalem. Abraham, at that point in time, met a man by the name of Melchizedek. He was the, the king of Jerusalem, and he was a priest of God Most High. We also know that in the year 1010 BC, that David conquered Jerusalem for the Jewish people and drove out the Jebusites and took over the city, and it was then called the City of David. It was also called Zion. It was the city of God. And in fact, when you go through the Bible, in fact, I'm going to go back to Psalm chapter 48. You know, it's amazing how many passages in Scripture exalt Jerusalem. Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Jerusalem is the city of God. His holy mountain, which must refer to the Temple Mount that rises above Jerusalem, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. That's Jerusalem. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. That means the city of the Messiah. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. See, Jerusalem is depicted in the Bible as the center of the earth. It's the joy of the earth. It's everything that the earth is looking forward to. It's the capital of earth. And it's that idea that we have all throughout our Bible. You know, ne ne Nehemiah, Daniel, Isaiah called Jerusalem the holy city. Psalm 50 calls it the city that is perfect in beauty. Psalm 46 calls it the city of God and the habitation of the Most High. We also know that it could be no other place other than Jerusalem where our Lord was crucified for the sins of the world. That's Jerusalem, that's the center of the earth. Now, having that in mind, I'm gonna take you to the book of Hebrews. And in book of Hebrews, we fast forward from the present era to the end of the age. I'm reading now Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, in the end of the day, Jerusalem becomes the center not only of the earth, it becomes the center of all of the works of God's hands. It is the place where God sits enthroned. And it's a fascinating idea. So if you can imagine Jerusalem today, it may be the city of God, but it's also a city of wickedness. It's been conquered many times. There have been numerous battles that have been fought around Jerusalem. Wars have waged around that city. And even though Jerusalem means city of peace, Yerushalayim, city of peace, it's been anything but. But the hope of Jerusalem is that it one day will be. And when we get to the book of Revelation, John writes, I saw a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, that it was descending from the sky, and I assume that it's coming from the very throne room of God, and it comes to the earth. It's a fascinating vision. The city that comes to earth is enormous in size. In fact, the dimensions of the new Jerusalem, and you can check it out in Revelation 21, is a city that if you look at the dimensions, is about the size, if you could imagine, from Vancouver to Winnipeg in length, the same in width and the same in height. It comes down as a cube and it's shining in glory. There's no temple in the city because the Lord himself is its glory. And in this, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's why John writes, there was no longer any sea. That is, God's dwelling place came to earth, and therefore the people who live in earth are invited freely before the Holy of Holies or into the throne room of God where they will worship the Lord God. See, I have an imagination here. You know, in the Old Testament, there are so many images of the the citizens of Israel as pilgrims going to Jerusalem during feast days to worship. And as they would come towards Jerusalem, we have a number of Psalms at the end of our Psalter, and the Psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent. And the, 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 the people coming towards Jerusalem, they would sing and they would praise God as they come. Imagine with me now, at the end of the age, when the redeemed of the Lord are placed on a renewed earth and they make their way to Jerusalem and they see the holy city, this magnificent cube. And as they're walking into the city, they're singing with joy in their hearts. I mean, they just love it. And they worship before the great king because they shall see him as he is. They'll stand in his glory and they'll rejoice before him. We've been talking about the New Jerusalem. And uh, I wanna read this description from Revelation 21 all the way to 22. And it is a description of what the New Jerusalem will look like. It says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. That is, its temple is the Father and the Son. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. But it's, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
Now, there's the glory of God, which is an overwhelming, all-consuming glory. I mean, I can almost imagine Moses on Mount Sinai, and he's got this audacious prayer. I mean, you might remember it. The Ten Commandments has been given, and, and he says to God, I would see your glory. And God says to him, you can't see my glory and live. It would be like standing at ground zero of an atomic blast. The glory of God is more than the human body can fathom. But now, when we received our new bodies, we actually come before the Lord God himself and we see the full display of his glory. I mean, I, I don't know what that would be. But Moses himself was so overwhelmed by what he saw because all that he saw was the glory that had passed. He never looked at the thing itself, but we will. That's what's inside this temple. And then it also says in verse 24 that by its light, the light of the glory of God, the nations will walk. I love that. You know, it seems to be that in heaven there are nations. Uh, whatever our nat place of national origin is, it seems that's not forgotten in heaven. Who we are and what God has made us to be is something that's not ignored, it's celebrated in heaven. All of the effects of the fall and everything that's there today in terms of racism and the rejection of others just won't be there. It'll be a, a celebration of the uniqueness of people groups. So it says that the kings of the earth come there and they bring their glory into it. That is, they bring all of the uniqueness of their culture into heaven. And it says, its gates will never be shut day or night. Or I, I shouldn't have said heaven, I should have said the new Jerusalem. And, and there will be no night there and they will bring their glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, unless your sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, there is no place for you in this place. But that's the wonderful offer that's being made. I, I hope you see that. I mean, the offer is come, have your sins forgiven. Come to the foot of the cross, accept Christ's offer of forgiveness, be made new, let your sins be washed away and become his servant and your name is honored in a role in which you are invited into this city. You know, I again wanna read from chapter 22 verse four, and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the glory of God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Well, there's a lot in that. And in the future, I'm gonna talk about what it means to reign with Christ, but that's what's being said. So with this picture in our mind, I wanna take you back to the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul has a marvelous tract on the nature of our salvation. He talks about in Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And then he says, that this grace has been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, watch these words, in heaven and things on earth. I wonder if you've ever had this feeling that what would it be like if everything that existed, including myself, was for the praise of God's glory? What would the world look like? What would it look to engage in whatever enterprise I'm engaged in fully to the glory of God? 
See, Paul says that in the end of the age, this is our hope, that all things on, in heaven and things on earth will be united in the glory of God. They'll make sense for the first time ever. That's the hope of the believer. So that's the life to come. It's a life where the nations of the earth are redeemed by Christ's blood. It's a, it's a world in which a genuine human culture flourishes. It's a world where there's no sorrow. It's a world where there's no dying and pain, but it is physical life. It's genuine human culture. It's replete with food and creativity, and it's all to the glory of God and the joy that we have in knowing God is our savior. You know, there's so much more to share. I mean, what kind of a body will we actually have in heaven? What are we gonna actually be doing? I mean, what fulfills our time? Because some of us are worried about that. I mean, this whole time dimension in heaven, that is, you know, that it goes on for eternity. I mean, some of us are bored after a week, you know, I mean, what does eternity look like and how will we be engaged? Well, that's a question and the Bible answers that. What will mark our worship in heaven? What will worship be like? What does it actually mean to see God? And I think that's a profound question. I mean, you and I should know that God the Father, in fact, God himself is spirit. He doesn't have a corporal form. So what does it mean to actually see him? Will we know everything in heaven? That's a real question that many people ask. In fact, a lot of us just assume it. When we get to heaven, we're gonna know everything. Well, is that actually true? Or will heaven be a place of growing and of learning and of creativity? These are the things that we need to yet learn. So we have so much more to talk about. We've just scratched the surface, but please remember what we've said. Heaven is a real place. The earth is renewed as well as the universe. Coming down from the throne room of God is a new Jerusalem, which opens up access into the direct throne room of God. And all of the nations that are redeemed by Christ walk into the throne room of God, fall before him and worship, and then carry on in all of our activities on the earth, all to the glory of God. What will that look like? Please continue to listen to this because I hope that what I have to say is gonna transform your picture of the world to come. Welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Neufeld. Uh, John, uh, as I was listening to you, a couple of questions came to mind, but let, let's start with the first one. The whole idea of the nations, yeah. you know, I don't know if I've ever really considered it to, to the degree which you talked yeah. about it, but in essence, this is God redeeming cultures, redeeming nations, bring them together. Give us a little bit more of a sense of what that's about. I think it was Richard Mao who had written a, written a book called When the Kings Come Marching In, and it was based yeah. on that very text. And one of the things that he said is that the nations bring their cultural artifacts and lay them before the king. And what he meant is that all of the nations of the world take the very best of what their culture could make and they bring it before God and say this, now let it be for your glory. Yeah. So everything gets transformed, including human ingenuity and, and cultural features that make up the human experience. Yeah, it's interesting because I would think some people think, you know, one, why I'm not so fussy about heaven is everything's gonna be the same. Everything's gonna be uh, cooker, uh, cook, cookie cutter-like. Yeah. But here we're talking about great diversity. 
Yeah, you know, the, the view that we should have of heaven is that we need to get rid of, of that static view of heaven, that nothing ever changes. Mm-hmm. Rather, there's a dynamic. But then you also mentioned this culture. Uh, the world is filled with cultures today that often causes wars. But what would a world be like in which cultural variances exist but it exists for the glory of God, for the the love of God, and that we use our cultural diversity to express love both for one another and for God. What would uniqueness of worship from all of the cultures sound and feel like? I mean- What an incredible thing to look forward to. Yeah. Tell me, uh, where are we headed next week? Yeah, well, we wanna keep uh, pushing this matter forward. I wanna talk about, you know, what the new body looks like and how that actually functions in human creativity and all of those other things. But I want to make sure that we don't just focus on that, but we are focused on seeing Christ at the same time. Amen. Amen. Thanks, John. And remember to join us next week right here on Truth and Life Today. 